Welcome to Bite Size Battles. By the time Alfred the Great died in 899, the Vikings had been raiding and then invading the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of England for over a hundred years. That century had seen three kingdoms conquered, two kings killed, one exiled, and thousands of people slaughtered and enslaved. It had seen the last Anglo-Saxon kingdom still standing, Wessex, sent to the very brink of annihilation, reduced to nothing more than a scrap of marshland where the fugitive King Alfred, his family and a few guards hid themselves, shaking in fear and cold. But in one of history's all-time greatest comeback stories, Alfred emerged from that swamp to triumph over the Viking great heathen army at the cataclysmic Battle of Eddington. In the peace treaty which followed, the Vikings were allowed to rule over the north and east of England, a place called the Danelaw, while Alfred and his proxies controlled the south and west. But at the same time, Alfred began calling himself the king of all the Anglo-Saxons, even those living under the Danelaw. It was effectively a megaphone, loudly declaring, I am your king, and I and my descendants will come for you. And come they did. Because Alfred had a vision not of Wessex, but of England. His son Edward the Elder and grandson Athelstan would make that dream come true. But one of the keys to beginning the reconquering and unification of England was not a single battle or a great king, although there were several of those. The key was an extraordinary woman, a woman whose name means noble beauty, a daughter of Alfred the Great and the Lady of the Mercians. She was so extraordinary that the Mercians, resurrected from Viking rule after Eddington, chose her to lead them when her husband became ill and died. At a time when women were subservient to men, the weavers of cloth and bearers of children, she was recognised as a force to be reckoned with, and the Vikings would find out just how much of a force soon enough. Because the wide-eyed eight-year-old that Alfred had led shivering into the swamps in 878 was called Aethelflade, and she had come of age in the wake of Eddington. While she wouldn't live to see it, her journey would lead to the dawn of a new nation. The dawn of England. I'm Andrew McKenzie, and welcome to the final episode of Viking England, The Battle of Brunanburh. Support Bite Size Battles now through the link in our website or Instagram page. Help me to bring history to life. Alfred was happy enough to give himself breathing space in the years following Eddington by formalising the Danelaw, that part of England where the Vikings could call home. 
But he also knew that he had signed away a multitude of Anglo-Saxon people to live under Danish rule, and he was determined to end that. He called himself the King of the Anglo-Saxons, and he dreamed of uniting all of his subjects under one kingdom, Angleland, England, and to call themselves English. Alfred's strategy was threefold. First, defence. He fortified a series of towns in Wessex, calling them burrs and providing them with walls, ditches and towers, and with new water wells and large stores for food and grain. He raised a standing army for the first time, determined to end his reliance on the unreliable and untrained third, or militia. He paid for that standing army with a new tax called the Burgel Hydage, with which the landowners of a particular burr were responsible for its upkeep. The burr of Wallingford, for example, which is close to where I live, had a hydage seeing them responsible for 2,400 men. Each burr guarded key tactical or strategic points, like rivers or critical towns, and each was situated no more than 33 miles from another. Alfred connected them all with roads, and when all was ready, it meant that at least one, and usually more than one burr, could respond to a Viking incursion within a day. And if it became necessary to withdraw, the garrisons could shelter within the burrs given that the Vikings never mastered the secrets of siege warfare. It was designed to end the old Viking strategy of taking a major town and using it as a base to ravage the country. So, with his new defensive burrs securing the flanks of home, Alfred could open up the second prong of his strategy. Attack. For the first real time since the Vikings had launched themselves at England a hundred years earlier, the Anglo-Saxons took the initiative and went on the offensive. With his new standing army, Alfred retook London from the Vikings in 886, and then very diplomatically returned it to the Mercians, from whom the Vikings had wrested it years before. Which brings us to the third part of Alfred's strategy. Mercia. Mercia, you'll remember from earlier episodes, was the once proud kingdom of roughly central England. But by 874, the Mercian army had been crushed and its king sent into exile in Rome. The Vikings then divided it in half, the east to be ruled directly by themselves, the west given nominal independence under a puppet king called Churlwulf. But in reality, it was nothing more than a quizzling state on a short Viking leash. Following Eddington, though, Alfred had insisted on Western Mercia's independence in fact, as well as name, and Churlwulf had been quietly disposed of, dying a year later. But Alfred was playing a clever game with Mercia's independence. He raised a man called Ethelred to Mercia's throne, but he did not allow Ethelred to become king. Instead, he was to be called the Lord of the Mercians. It was a small but utterly important detail, and Ethelred, grateful for power through Alfred's support, 
and for Western Mercy's independence from the Vikings, simply nodded and smiled. Mercy's independence, then, had really been transferred from the Vikings to Wessex. Alfred remained keen to be seen as a liberator of Mercia, and not a new conqueror, which was one of the reasons he handed control of London back to Ethelred in 886. But it was at this moment that the Mercian lord formally acknowledged Alfred's overlordship, and to seal the deal, Alfred gave Ethelred his daughter's hand in marriage. That is, Aethelflaed's hand. So, Alfred won Western Mercia's freedom from the Vikings, was responsible for Ethelred's position as its lord, sweetened the deal by giving him London, and then sweetened it even further by giving him Aethelflaed. In essence, Mercia became united with Wessex. The relative peace since Eddington lasted around 12 or 14 years, until the early 890s, and Alfred had used it well. He had a network of fortified burrs defending his kingdom, he had a standing army and military road network, he'd taken the offensive and won London, and he had taken the first step in forging the old Anglo-Saxon kingdoms into England by effectively joining Mercia with Wessex. The peace that had allowed him the space to do all this was largely down to one man, Guthrum. Guthrum was the final leader of the great heathen army who Alfred had beaten at Eddington. After the battle, Guthrum had agreed to be baptised as a Christian, and then retired to rule over East Anglia as a Christian king. His conversion seemed genuine, and he led no armies against Wessex for the rest of his life. It's also possible that he prevented other Viking leaders from preying on England by encouraging them to immigrate to the Danelaw rather than assault Wessex. Of course, there were other factors in the peace of the 880s, but when Guthrum died in 890, it's no coincidence that just two years later, the Dragon Lords came sailing to England yet again. Alfred found himself facing three simultaneous invasions two from Viking fleets in Kent in the southeast of England, and another from the Vikings of the Danelaw who went on the rampage at the opposite end of the south coast, in Devon. Alfred was up to his neck in it, facing a multi-front war at opposite ends of Wessex. But in short, his burr system proved so successful that not one major town was taken, and by 897, all three Viking invasions had been crushed. Both Wessex and Mercia emerged stronger than ever. Alfred died just two years later in 899, but he did so knowing that he had started the journey towards the unification of England, and left the Anglo-Saxons with a solid foundation to grow from. He knew too that he had a smart and able son in Edward the Elder to succeed him, and he lived to see his daughter Aethelflaed beginning her own journey to becoming more than simply the wife of the Lord of Mercians. She was on her way to becoming Mercia's effective ruler. 
Aethelflaede had been increasingly involved in running Mercia's affairs, proving herself astute and charismatic, winning over even some of the more cynical Mercian earldermen, who initially saw her as nothing more than an instrument of Alfred's control over Mercia. Then, when her husband Ethelred began to grow ill and eventually died, she had been so impressive that she was chosen to succeed him. In 911 then, she became the Lady of the Mercians, the only female ruler in Anglo-Saxon history. She had been de facto ruler of Mercia since at least 902, and she and her brother, now King Edward of Wessex, had been giving the Vikings of the Danelaw a good beating. Aethelflaed herself planned a devastating raid of Northumbria, and she and Edward of Wessex sent a huge force there in 909. The Vikings retaliated and laid waste to much of Mercia, but then Aethelflaed caught up with them at a place called Tettenhall. We know frustratingly little about the details of the battle, but the Vikings found themselves surprised and sandwiched between Edward and Aethelflaed's armies. Aethelflaed herself led the Mercian troops and sat on horseback with blonde hair whipping in the wind, directing the struggle. The men of Mercia and Wessex would have formed shield walls opposite each other, with the Vikings in between, and I think the Vikings would have gone back to back at this point, two shield walls of their own pressed between the clamp of Alfred's children. The fight was savage. Two Danish kings were there, roaring at their men to honour the gods and their ancestors, to face their deaths with joy, reminding them that they would be feasting with Odin in Valhalla soon enough, but to take some of these filthy Saxons with them when they did. Of course, caught in a vice between the combined forces of Wessex and Mercia, the Northumbrian Vikings could only litter the ground with their own bodies. No doubt they did take a good number of Anglo-Saxons with them, but the Vikings called Tettenhall the Battle of Wodensfield, because so many warriors had been taken by Odin, or Woden. Aethelflaed and her brother broke the army of Viking Northumbria at Tettenhall, and now they each used that opportunity to grow the embryonic England. Aethelflaed, now fully a warrior queen, planned and assaulted the eastern part of Mercia, which had been Viking ever since the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok, Halfdan and Ubba had taken it 36 years earlier. She and the Mercians swept to victory, reuniting Mercia, and with her military success guarding King Edward's northern flank, Wessex conquered East Anglia. Aethelflaed's success then took her into Northumbria, but just as the rulers of York were preparing to offer her their surrender, she died in 918. Through her strategic planning, battlefield tactical nous, and talismanic influence on the Mercians, Aethelflaed had retaken and reformed all of Mercia, and allowed Edward to take East Anglia. Aethelflaed's husband, Ethelred, had had mixed success fighting the Vikings, but she had been astonishing. Without Aethelflaed at the Mercian helm, 
it's highly likely that Mercy and Wessex's collaboration would not have been as close as it was, that Mercy and military fortunes would not have risen so high, and that Edward, without his northern flank covered by his sister, would not have felt secure enough to reconquer East Anglia. Aethelflaed, then, was the key that allowed the three old kingdoms of Wessex, Mercia and East Anglia to be joined together, effectively jump-starting the beginning of England. And her death was mourned as such. Her brother Edward, the King of Wessex and a sound ruler in his own right, took the opportunity, though, to ensure Mercia truly became a part of the new and growing nation. Aethelflaed's only daughter, Aelfwyn, was chosen as her successor as the Lady of the Mercians, but Edward had her deposed and sent to a monastery. Mercia would be allowed its earldomen, but from now on their ruler would be Edward and his descendants. Mercia, whose independence had been allowed to a degree, was now directly ruled by Edward, and it was his son, Athelstan, who would be the first to style himself King of England. Edward died six years after his sister in 924, and Athelstan found himself with a crown heavy with expectation. He was from a line of the kings of Wessex, but now with royal authority in Mercia and East Anglia too. Many in those ancient kingdoms resented what they saw as a Wessex takeover, which of course it was in many ways. But many others saw in unification a better way to resist the Vikings, who were still in England, and others who could arrive from across the sea at any moment. Many believed too in the idea of Anglo-Saxon destiny to unite, finally, as the English. And it was that idea that propelled Athelstan to York in 927, which he took from the weakened Northumbrian Vikings. The capture of York and the submission of Northumbria brought the last of the four major Anglo-Saxon kingdoms under Athelstan's control. Just 28 years after his grandfather Alfred had died, England was born. But the infant England was not secure. The Scots to the north had been unifying their own kingdom as Alba, and Athelstan saw it as a threat to his new north. It's also possible that Alba's king Constantine broke a treaty that he had with the English, or that Athelstan's ego drove him on. But whatever the case, not a few years after England had been born did it first make war on Scotland. Constantine resisted, but eventually told Ethelred if he'd just withdraw south, he would accept England's overlordship. Constantine was a pragmatist. He couldn't resist England on his own, but he didn't much like having to bend the knee to this English puppy either. So he cast his eye about for allies, and they fell upon the Vikings of Ireland. Olaf Guthrithson had just succeeded his father to the Viking throne of Dublin, and he himself now looked at the old Viking kingdom of Northumbria with irritated eyes. It was English now, but it had belonged to the Danes for over a century, 
Olaf wanted it back for himself and for all Northmen. He too was too weak to take on Ethelred alone, and so took Constantine's Scottish hand of friendship gladly, as well as the hand of Constantine's daughter in marriage too. Now it was time for war. Olaf sailed his Viking Irish to Northumbria and met Constantine's Scottish army there. Together they marched south, invaded Mercia and began throwing their martial weight around to the dismay of the unfortunate locals. Athelstan was, of course, rushing north to meet them with as many men as he could gather from the shires of Wessex and Mercia, and after a hard march, Athelstan met the Norse-Scottish alliance at Brunanburgh for a battle which would seal the future of England one way or another. Defeat for Athelstan would see Northumbria fall to Olaf, and those Mercians and East Anglians still unhappy about unification with Wessex might now take their chance to rebel. Project England would crumble at the first hurdle. The stakes for Athelstan then could not have been higher. The location of Brunanburgh and the fight's details are hazy and up for debate, like so many other early medieval battles. But there's no question that Brunanburgh was a mother of bloodbaths. So, just for you, using the various fragments of information that we do know and adding a splash of artistic license with a dash of speculation, I've pieced together how I think the battle went down. There are no reliable sources for the numbers involved, but the annals of Clonmacnoise say that by the end of the day, 34,800 Vikings were dead. That does seem a little far-fetched, given that the great heathen army of a hundred years earlier numbered just 3,000, at least at first. But we also know that the battles of Stamford Bridge and Hastings, 130 years later, saw armies in excess of 10,000 men on each side. So my guess is that the combined might of the Norse, Irish and Scots alliance numbered around 10,000. Athelstan, marching with men probably from several of the Wessex and Mercian shires, might have shown up with around the same. Olaf had taken command of the 10,000 Norse and Scots, and they dug themselves quite literally into a hillside. They built timber-fortified trenches facing downhill, in what must have seemed an unassailable position, with precipitous and steep slopes on either side guarding the flanks. Here, they waited for the English army to show itself. As the Vikings and Scots stared into the far distance from their fortified trenches, 10,000 pairs of eyes must have stared hard as the keen-sighted suddenly spotted the unmistakable shadow of a large body of men coming straight for them. Olaf and Constantine, laughing and drinking while they played a game of taffel, must have looked up from the board and into each other's eyes. Constantine saw nothing but steel in Olaf's bushy-browed eyes, but the Viking thought he spotted the briefest flashes of worry in his ally's own. It made sense, he thought. 
in the unlikely event these bunch of puny English somehow overcame them, he could at least sail away back to Dublin. Constantine, though, would have to get on his knees and grovel, if he still lived. Constantine himself knew the dangers only too well, but he, along with every man among them, gripped the hilts of their weapons a little tighter, determined that they would send Athelstan's dogs running back down the hillside, back to their soft southern country. But for now, while they were still miles away, the English were coming and would soon be here. It was October or November, and the next day broke cold and grey, the men huddling in their trenches as cooking fires fought the wind to warm food and hands. The English had marched hard the previous day, camped at the foot of the hill, and were even now beginning to mass. The Vikings could hear the guttural shouts of Anglo-Saxons as they encouraged and cajoled each other. They could hear the low drone of Latin from the priests walking up and down their lines, still bizarre to their pagan ears. Odin surely would never allow his people to be overwhelmed by such a pathetic bunch of weasels led by good-for-nothing priests. Athelstan made the sign of the cross as the priests said psalms and prayers over him and his men. He was ready, and he could tell from the broad shoulders and steady feet of his troops, they were ready too. They and their ancestors had been fighting for Anglo-Saxon England for decades, and they were finally winning. The Norse had shown their desperation by getting those pale-skinned Scots to fight with them. It didn't matter. These Norse and Scots would know the worth of English steel by the end of the day. Both sides drank. Olaf encouraged it. Athelstan overlooked it. It was terrifying to stand in a shield wall and force yourself to walk towards your enemy, themselves locked in their own. Imagine a long line of huge circular shields, painted with wolves and dragons and ravens, and behind those shields stood huge, grim men, fierce eyes staring from beneath helmets of iron. Behind them stood thousands more, holding shields above the heads of the front rank and spears which threatened anyone who got too close. And if the spears didn't get you, axes and short swords stood ready to steal your life away instead. The English must have looked up the hill to see that shield wall, standing behind the trenches dug into the earth, themselves filled with heavily armed Vikings and Scots. Sweet Jesus, they must have thought. The trench was an interesting move for the Vikings, but it does make a kind of sense. One of the difficulties in fighting downhill in a shield wall is that your ankles and calves are vulnerable to the men beneath you. As you're higher than they are, you'll find it easier to bring your axes crashing down on their heads, but they'll find it easier to cut your legs and feet and Achilles' heels by reaching underneath your shield. It's known that even young boys with the army would crawl through the legs of their own men in the shield wall battle, stabbing the enemy's feet and ankles with knives and causing men to suddenly crumple out of line, causing a hole for you to rush through. 
but the North Scottish trenches removed that possibility. Now the English would have to scramble over a parapet and down into a trench filled with crazed Vikings and wild Scots. It would break the English shield wall and they'd have to do it while pelted with arrows, spears and stones from the men on the far side of the trench. And if that's not enough, assuming they won the trench, they'd have to clamber back out the other side into the teeth of an organised shield wall. The defence was a work of genius, and Athelstan had no real choice but to order his men into its jaws. So, with horns blaring and banners cracking in the wind, the English started up the hill. Keeping the shield wall locked tight to guard against missiles, they strode steadily up that incline, praying that they would see their wives, mothers and children again. But with just a few feet to go, all thoughts of family vanished as the first arrows and stones began to thump and rattle against shields and armour. One or two men somewhere screamed in pain, joined by steadying shouts of encouragement from Athelstan and the English elderman. The Vikings taunted the English and the Scots screeched in excited glee, barely able to keep themselves to the trench, so eager were they to spill blood. Throwing spears now joined the fusillade as the English edged closer, hammering men from their feet, others sticking in shields causing their owners to expose themselves while they either swapped them or pulled the spears out. The anticipation was now crushing. They were just moments away from the trench and men were already dying and wounded, the noise a terrible cacophony of an unbroken rain of missiles hammering on wood and iron, the jeers and laughter of the Norse filling their ears and hearts with rage. But now the English advanced through the hailstorm to within spitting distance of the parapet, and letting out an almighty roar, suddenly swept aside their shields to climb the low parapet of timber and earth. Olaf watched the Englishmen advance slowly up the hill towards them, almost begging them to come more quickly to their deaths. He couldn't help but be impressed with the discipline of the shield wall over the difficult ground and into the teeth of his missile shower, but victory would be even sweeter fighting against disciplined soldiers. He saw the English reach his trench and suddenly raise the shield wall as one at a roared order from somewhere in the serried ranks. That solid line of wood transformed instantly into a tide of men surging forwards with enthusiastic abandon. Yes, he laughed, this will make a good saga for his grandchildren to hear one day. The first wave of English were driven back from the parapet by a storm of missiles that had been held back in anticipation. But they pressed on and began fighting the Vikings on the parapet itself in a desperate scramble of hacked axes and flashing swords. Blood began erupting from severed limbs and slashed necks, and with the Viking missiles slowing so as not to hit their own men in the back, Englishmen began to overwhelm the parapet. Climbing over the timber and dropping hard into the trench, the first of them were hacked to death by a flurry of half a dozen axes each but soon the weight of Englishmen pouring over the parapet began to even the numbers in the trench, and it quickly became a frantic fight of the ages, 
A fight of blood and mud, axes cleaving, spears lunging and swords thrusting. Men grappled with each other frenziedly, hands slippery with gore and filth, pairs and threes falling into the quagmire and quickly trampled by hundreds of others. Vikings called on Odin, Scots keened war cries, and Englishmen called on God to savage their enemies. Mortally wounded men called for their mothers. The Vikings now launched a counter-attack into the trench from one end, while the Scots took the other, hoping to crush the English in a devastating pincer. But Athelstan still had plenty of troops still on the hillside, and pushed hard against the counter-attack until it was abandoned. The trench degenerated into the worst kind of face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat imaginable. And with the Norse Scots deciding that they now would no longer support the trench, their men fighting in it were doomed. As Englishmen continually replaced their dead, Viking and Scots numbers in the trench dwindled, and eventually all that was left was a carpet of corpses and wounded men writhing in a slosh of blood, mud, vomit, excrement and gore. Now the English looked up and out of the trench to the solid line of Norse shields. The Vikings begged them to come and try their luck. And try they did. But scrambling out of a trench into the teeth of a shield wall is not something I would like to try. Hundreds of individual Englishmen fell with an axe in the head as they clambered up and out, and even those that managed to find their feet stood alone and were overwhelmed. But Athelstan joined them in the filth of the trench, roaring at them to follow him. His bodyguard held him back, covering him with their shields, but the effect was talismanic, with thousands more English surging forwards, helping each other out. It still looked hopeless, but it kept the Vikings distracted, which is exactly what Athelstan wanted. Because suddenly he heard the thunder of Anglo-Saxon shouts he'd been waiting for, behind the Viking lines. A large group of English had been sent around the flanks of the hill, searching for another way up. And they found one. Climbing up steep slopes with weapons strapped to their backs, they emerged and mustered in secret, all Viking and Scottish eyes fixed forward to Athelstan and the trench. And now they struck. Olaf had been grinning and keening with joy, placing himself in the front rank with his shield wall and hammering open a dozen English skulls. This was going so well, he thought, he would be back in York by tomorrow, feasting and drinking and sharing his bed with some beauty or other. Life was good. But then he heard the roar of men behind him and his blood turned to ice. How could it be so stupid, he thought. The English ambushed Olaf and Constantine forces in the rear, carving into the least enthusiastic or most drunk warriors at the back. The slaughter was great, and as more and more Vikings and Scots turned to face them, panic began to ripple through the otherwise ordered shield wall facing the trench. As heads turned to see what was happening, 
English spears from the trench found unprotected ankles, just as others scrambled up and out. Now suddenly able to hold position for even a few seconds, allowing more to follow them. Soon the English had managed to form their own thin shield wall and began to push and hack at the Vikings, still wavering at the idea of an enemy behind them. Screams and shrieks were filling the air ever closer to their backs, and inevitably the shield wall broke, shattering into a thousand pieces, individual men now suddenly running for their lives. As men raced down the hill in any direction they could find, English horsemen trampled and cut them down from behind. The rout turned into a massacre. The Annals of Ulster described Brunanburh as a great battle. Lamentable and terrible was cruelly fought, in which fell uncounted thousands of Northmen. And on the other side, a multitude of Saxons fell. But Athelstan, the king of the Saxons, obtained a great victory. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, No slaughter yet was greater made ever in this island, of people slain with the edge of sword. Olaf and Constantine somehow fought their way clear of the rout, probably with the aid of their heavily armed bodyguard, many of whom likely sacrificed themselves so their kings could escape. Olaf fled back to Dublin with what little remained of his army, and Constantine limped back across the border to Scotland, only to later submit to Athelstan as his overlord. What Brunanburh represented in English history has been overshadowed by the later Norman victory at Hastings in 1066. But this battle in 937 was the one which solidified for the first time the idea of England, formed and defended into reality. And not just England either, because it etched out the borders with Scotland and Wales too confirming for each of those nations their sense of difference from England, if they had even needed that. This was a journey that had started in the swamps of Somerset, as Alfred the Great fought to renew his kingdom of Wessex. His children, Edward the Elder and Aethelflaed, had reconquered Mercia and East Anglia, and now Athelstan had won Northumbria and defended his new united England, from a massive Viking and Scottish alliance. This was hardly the end of England's struggles, with countless more Viking raids and invasions to come, until the almighty Battle of Stamford Bridge finally ended the Viking Age in 1066. And of course, it was the Vikings who really had the last laugh, because three weeks after Stamford Bridge, the Normans, descendants of Vikings under the famous Rollo, smashed the Anglo-Saxon army at Hastings. But now, in 937, the land of the Angles was now England, and it was the furnace of Viking warfare which had made it happen. That new nation would go on to change the world in centuries to come. If you're interested in hearing more about the struggle between England and Viking invaders, you can listen to the battles of Assenden and Stamford Bridge in our English Game of Thrones series, Bite-Sized Battles Maiden series. I'm Andrew McKenzie, and as always, thank you for listening.
Bite-sized battles relies on the kind support of the people who enjoy what I do. You can too through the link in our website at bitesizebattles.com or through our Instagram at bitesizebattles. Help me to bring history to life.